to do right now is he's going to drop the hammer of the law. And I'm not going to leave you where he leaves us there in chapter 1 because that would be depressing. Let me tell you about the book of Romans. The first three chapters is Paul essentially diagnosing the disease of sin in all mankind. Okay? Uh, in chapters 4 through 11, what he's doing basically is just uh, describing and declaring, I should say declaring, the radicality. I don't think that's a word, but I'm from Mississippi, so I can get away with it. The radicality of the gospel. And then from chapters 12 to 16, basically what he's doing is showing us what this life is supposed to look like. Uh, so let's pick it up here in verse 18. And he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now notice he's talking to a Jewish religious audience. And so what you're going to find is he's going to get them nodding their head. Because it was very common for them to write in, in their literary uh, style in those days to establish this us and them dichotomy. So in other words, and we have it in church sometimes too, don't we? It's us and, and them. So, so we're, we're not where they are. That's good. We're, we're good people, but them are different than us. And so he's going to subtly now attack that position. Watch what he says. Because uh, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Anybody ever wondered about the pygmies and people that haven't heard the gospel? Anybody ever had that thought? Well, the Bible has an answer for everything. And he's going to take care of them. He loves them more than we do. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the road to a foolish, darkened heart is to begin to think wrongly about the Father and who we are in relationship to him. Okay? Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. He, without them really knowing it, has got their heads bobbing. They are in agreement. You know, it's like an Eminem concert, right? They're just all jiving with what he's saying. And he's referring now to what they did in the wilderness. And I love that story. Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. And Aaron is down with the people. And he's a little bit like a politician. Whichever flavor you, you prefer. Doesn't really matter. The people wanted him to do something for them. And so he said, okay, bring me all your gold. And he, the Bible says he took his tools and fashioned the golden calf and put it in the fire. Moses comes down. He says, what is going on? And Aaron's like, well, I don't know. We put the gold in and this calf came out. <laughs> a lot like our kids, right? I, I didn't get in the Cheetos. I got Cheeto dust all over. Fingers, orange everywhere. It wasn't me. And that's kind of how Aaron was. So he's referring now to them. But not them, but them. Us. Usins, as we say in the South. Now watch. Verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. 
Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of a woman burned in their lust to one another, men with men committing uh, what is shameful um, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Now, you could read that and go, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I'm not doing that. And, you know, some guy said to me after church, he goes, well, you know, in Canada, uh, they... uh, they don't let them preach Romans 1 no more. They throw them in jail. I said, well, when you're back-to-back World War champs, you can preach what you want to preach. That's why I ain't living in Canada. So he's got the heads bobbing, right? Oh, yeah, homosexuals. That, that's the one we raise up the flagpole of the Christian church. And, yeah, we don't talk about anything but how God hates fags. Yeah, all we do is talk about how homosexually ascended us to hell and all this stuff. But you've got to keep reading because now he's going to get after that bobbing head. See what I'm saying? And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Notice it all comes back to this. A debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, now heterosexual, pornographic stuff and, and, and fornication and adultery and all this stuff. So now he's departed from the this to the, oh crap. I'm in the same passage. Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder. You ever killed anybody? No. You ever wish somebody was dead? Yeah. I ain't going to kill them, but I ain't crying if they die either, you know. So the Bible says we're guilty. Just as guilty as the homosexual. Just as guilty as the idolater. You know, we know that we're not supposed to worship unrighteousness. or, Or let's say, you know, that kind of lifestyle. Let's call it immorality. But how many of you know we're not supposed to worship morality? Hmm. We know God uh, hates unrighteousness, but doesn't he hate self-righteousness? What if somebody, you, you know, is trying to make their life about breaking the rules? Well, that's not good. But what if somebody's trying to live their life by keeping all the rules? I'm going to meddle a little bit today. I'm going after them bobbing heads. Watch this. It gets more dicey. Strife. Anybody ever, uh, you know, contributed to relational upheaval? If you're married to a woman, I know you have. (laughs) Strife. Deceit. Evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Now we're going to get on the phone ministry. Backbiters. Haters of God. Violent, proud, boasters, ever brag about something or be proud in your heart about something? Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. None of us have ever done that, of course. Undiscerning means foolish, untrustworthy. Ever been afraid to to engage the gospel and give to God because you don't trust God? Ever had that just a little bit? Untrusting, it means... Faithless, one translation says. Unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. See, what Paul is doing is breaking out the hammer of the law so that everybody knows they are guilty. The radicality, and I know that's not a word, but I love it. The radicality, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. 
Cappadocius. The radicality of the gospel can't be received unless we realize without him we're guilty. See, Jesus didn't come to save good people. The gospel isn't about good people trying to get better. It's about bad people coping with their inability to be good. Some of you are on Twitter, so I'm going to say that again. The gospel is not about good people getting better. It's about bad people dealing with the fact that they can't be good. And that's where we all line up based on what Paul is saying, that we're all guilty. We all deserve death. Watch what he says now. He brings this to a crescendo. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Wow. Okay. We're all deserving of death. Nobody escapes the guilty verdict. Let's go eat a chicken leg. See, we would, I would never leave you like that. And guess what? God wouldn't either. That's the end of that chapter. But remember, we're reading a letter. Now, I know we don't write many letters anymore, and my son just got out of boot camp, and we wrote a lot of letters for the first time. It's like, really? We've got to write a letter? But when you write a letter, you write it in one sitting, typically, and you expect it to be read in one sitting. So this is a letter we're reading, and we're reading it in segments, but he wrote it probably in one setting and thought that it would be read in one setting. So we have to sort of build in and backfill some contextual truth so you don't run out of here feeling like God thinks you deserve to die. Okay, is that all right? Well, look how he goes on into... Now, remember, it was they. The whole last part of chapter 1 was about they, and now he's spinning it. He's kind of dropped the hints that it's coming. But now watch him spin this on them and jam them with it right here in verse 1. Therefore, you... Somebody say you. You are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. The nodding head, right? For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, produce, or practice rather, the same things. Remember when Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, or as Isaiah 6, he, went, he goes into the temple. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. And, and, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And the angels are, are, are singing holy, holy, holy and all of that. Remember that? Remember what he said? He said, woe is me. Remember in chapter 5, six times he said, woe is you. And he's bringing the hammer, man. He is God's anointed. He is God's appointed. He's the prophet, right? And he's bringing the woe, right? Well, then he gets into the straight, unadulterated glory of the Father, the light of God. And you know what he sees? Himself. In fact, that last part of chapter 1, Paul is probably just looking at his own heart. Because how I know, how I always preach, how you say, man, that was just for me today, Pastor Ken. You know how you feel that way a lot? Well, you know why you do? Because I'm just preaching from what my deal is. And we're all the same. Our hearts are the same. So we deal with stuff. But see, in that light, Isaiah recognized, I'm just like them. It's not them, it's us. It's all of us. We are guilty in the presence of God without a Savior. And he said, woe is me, I am undone. And that's what we see, Paul is bringing this truth. And let me tell you something, there is not a lot of good news in the first three chapters. He is diagnosing sin, 
But when we break out of three, as three ends, and we get into four, man, it is, it's on and popping, right? But So we're just going to work through this stuff and keep reminding ourselves of who we are now in Christ. He goes on to say, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do not think this, O oh man, you who judge, practicing such uh, such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Somebody was telling me yesterday that a notable preacher uh, put out on social media or something on his webpage that it is the fear of God that brings you into relationship with God and keeps you there, not the love of God. Well, you know what? I'm not very smart. I've already said I'm from Mississippi, so that pretty much sums it up. But the Bible says, see, when you're not very smart and you know it, you can just let the Bible speak. The Bible says it is the goodness of God. Now, the Old Testament says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And fear in a reverential way is true. And, And particularly then. But in the New Covenant, for New Testament believers, and where he's going with all this is, it's the love of God. Knowing that you're loved completely, know that you're forgiven forever, know that you're his favorite except for me, and I'm his favorite except for you, then what that means to us is the goodness of God keeps us in step. We are running to catch up. I'm in step with my wife because she loves me completely, and I don't think I could get a deal like that anywhere else. Her love for me is unconditional. Therefore, she knows that because I love God and He loves me more than I love Him, that I'll never break that trust because I appreciate such love. And that's what causes us to draw near to Him, is knowing that we're loved completely. He goes on, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath, revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Remember now, he's talking to law keepers. So he's hammering on the deeds and the doing. He wants to draw them into this again to realize that they can't be good enough. They can't do it enough and consistent enough to qualify because if you miss it once, you missed it, right? Because it's death if you miss it one time. And so Jesus was uh, accused of being an antinomian, which means somebody that's against the law of God. And he said, no, wait a minute, I'm not that. I came to fulfill the law. And in fulfilling the law, he did that, by the way, on our behalf. So now it's not that, we, that, that the law is bad, the law is good, the law is perfect, and the law is righteousness embodied. Just the problem is nobody could get there. So God came down, fulfilled it, qualified us forever, and now we have this reality. But they don't know that yet. So he's hammering on the deeds part, okay? So he will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and in doing good, because remember they're under the law, so to get immortality, eternal life, then you've got to be patiently doing good, seeking for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works. There it is again. What is good to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So the bottom line is he just crushes with the full weight of the law. 
to these people that assumed because they were doing as good as they can. See, remember, Paul isn't coming to change the paradigm of Christianity. He's coming to establish it. They're transitioning from law to grace, so they didn't have a paradigm of Christianity. Today, we need to change it back to what he says. But in those days, he's forming this paradigm. And let me tell you, the paradigm isn't from sickness to health. That's what Christianity is. The the paradigm isn't you do as good as you can and God will do the rest. The paradigm isn't in Christianity good to great. The paradigm is death to life. That's what this is. And, And believe me, the good news is we're all bad. That's what he's trying to establish. And Jesus didn't come to save good people. He came to save bad people who couldn't do good at all. And that's the beauty of what we're talking about. Winston Churchill said the heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. And that essentially sums it up, doesn't it? Now, I'm going to finish with, uh, with just reminding you of the story of the Good Samaritan. Anybody ever heard that parable, that story? Remember how he got into that parable? A Jewish lawyer came. You've got to watch the lawyers. And essentially, very similar to the, young, the rich young ruler, came to him to try to justify himself. So he begins to talk to Jesus. So Jesus lays it out. And he said, listen, um, let me tell you a story about a, a Samaritan. So, so this man, you know, travels and he gets beat up and bloodied. And, and so he's laid out in the street and the roadway. And the priest comes by, passes him up. Then the Levite comes by, passes him up. But then this... Samaritan comes. The Samaritan was universally rejected in those days. Um, he was a half-breed, if you will, half-Jew, half-Gentile, looked down upon by the culture of the Jews. So he comes and finds this Jewish man beaten and bloodied and all of that, and he binds him up, pours in oil and, and, and wine and heals him, and then takes him to the, to the inn and, and tells the guy, hey, listen, here's the money for what he just ate and whatever he needs last night, but here's my debit card. And the pin number, and whatever he needs after this, until I come, pay for it. And then he tells the Jewish lawyer, go and be like the good Samaritan. And so we've adopted that into our psyche, thinking that if we're going to do something that pleases Jesus, and if we're going to WWJD, what would Jesus do? Then we're going to be like the good Samaritan. And we can do pretty good at that, right? I mean, like we, I think this week we fed, last Wednesday we fed 73 families at the difference. So that's 73 times 5. So that's a few hundred people. We clothed and fed and encouraged and let them know Jesus loves them unconditionally and all that kind of stuff. And that's good, but, but it's just not good enough, is it? And so we could be like the Good Samaritan a little bit. But how many of you are willing to meet somebody in the parking lot at Walmart and give them your debit card? And your PIN number. Some of you are thinking, well, it don't really matter. There's nothing in my account anyway. So <laughs> who cares, right? Joke's on you, right? Want to steal my identity? Go for it, buddy. Maybe I can have yours in exchange. Have at it. Right? <laughs> but, but the whole idea is this. We missed it altogether. Because we're not the good Samaritan. We're the beleaguered, bloody traveler. That Jesus comes, he's the half-breed. Anybody remember somebody named Rahab the harlot? Don't you love it when God gives the name and the title? He's usually trying to make a point. Like, you ain't all that, Jack. Remember Rahab the harlot, your auntie? We all know how that went, right? Or Tamar, or we could go on and on, right? 
Okay, so that's it. She's in the lineage of Jesus. And then there's a lady called Rahab, or I'm sorry, uh, Ruth the Moabitess. She was an idolatrous woman who worshipped the stars, and, and, and she became David's great-grandmother in the lineage of Jesus on both his mother, Mary, and his adopted father, Joseph's side. So here comes the half-breed. Rejected, despised, cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he wraps us, and he binds us, and he mends us, and he saves us, and he makes us new creations. And then he takes us to a place of rest. And that's where we're at today. He takes us to a place of rest. And then he gives the innkeeper his debit card and his pen and says, anything they charge up and anything that they need to pay on their behalf until I return, pay it in full. So he said, it is finished, it is paid, it is done, and that's who we are in light of what he has done. So friend, we ought to be resting in that finished work. We ought to be enjoying the fact that he paid for it, not you. Scholars call that double imputation. Our sin was imputed or given to him, and he did nothing to earn it or deserve it. And his righteousness was imputed to us, even though we did nothing to earn it or deserve it. It was given as a gift. Man, that's powerful, isn't it? Well, that's Romans 1 and part of 2. Let's give the Lord a shout today. <laughs>